We're looking tonight at Psalm 24 as we have been uh, working our way through various psalms, and we are not going in any specific order. And yet, Pastor Barrett and I have been able to pick uh, various psalms that we love, and I think he noted this last Sunday, Lord's Day evening, that um, that these psalms are near and dear to us. We pick them for very specific reasons. Psalm 24 is very near and dear to me because it was reading this psalm as a very young Christian that the Holy Spirit really flooded my mind and heart with understanding that it was speaking about Christ, that I didn't have to read a commentary to understand that this was speaking about the ascension of Jesus. And I remember sitting on the bed I was on reading this as a new Christian just astonished at the magnificence of this psalm. And so I hope that the Lord will astonish us afresh tonight as we look at this together. So we're looking at Psalm 24, and we're going to read the entirety of the psalm, verses 1 through 10. And as usual, I know that you'll find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along there with me. And this is, as the title indicates, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, and the king of glory, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know what sort of experiences you've had in life that you have deemed special. Usually they're those experiences where you've uh, had some special privilege. Uh, For me, certainly one of those was getting to go to the Masters many years ago and knowing that so many other people wanted to go and they couldn't and I could was a joyful experience. And and I'll never forget uh, the first time coming up to the gates and you have to get rid of your cell phone and the the anticipation's just killing you. What is it like inside? It's the closest thing to the Garden of Eden. I say that very reverently on earth. And right outside, it looks like the fall. It's very, the contrast is stark. And, And as... We walk through, it's better than Disney World, kids, much better than Disney World. And as we, we walked in there, and you enter this magical world where everything seems like it's free, and, and everyone's happy and gets along, and nobody yells, and they're just nice to each other. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible privilege, and, and as I thought about that and reflected on this psalm, uh, there is something in this psalm that uh, is drawing our attention to the fact that the thing that ought to captivate our minds and hearts the most as a Christian, the thing that ought to give us the most joy is being able to answer the question, who may ascend the hill 
of the Lord who may stand in his holy place. There is a privilege above all other privileges. Um, There is no greater question to occupy our minds and hearts. How can I ascend the hill of the Lord? How can I dwell in his holy place? And what's interesting about this psalm, and we'll notice this here in a moment, is this psalm is almost certainly set against the background of David bringing up the ark that had been captured by the Philistines, and it had been there with the Philistines for decades. And, and when David first brought that ark up and they had built a new cart for it, which God had not, had not commissioned him to do and was not in keeping with the law, and as the, the, the oxen, the bulls brought that, that ark of the covenant, the, the dwelling place of God, this is where God has chosen to dwell on earth in the Old Testament, in between the, the two cherubim with their wings touching and, and the mercy seat with the blood the blood of the sacrifice would go on, and when the, the high priest would put that blood down, God would appear, the Shekinah glory. This is, of all places on earth in the Old Testament, where God dwelt with his people. But the ark had been captured, and David is now bringing it up. And, and you know the story, Uzzah puts his hand out because it gets shaky, and God strikes Uzzah dead. And David is fearful, and so... David doesn't want to move it anymore, and so it ends up in the house of Obed-Edom, and David sort of forgets about it. He's afraid to bring it up into Jerusalem, and yet as he watches things and he considers what happened to Uzzah, God's infinite holiness, the seriousness with which God takes his worship— and that he struck him dead, and David had been angry about that, but then he saw how God was blessing the house of Obed-Edom, and, and David realized that blessings for the people of God. We need to get the ark back into the holy place, into the most holy place, um, into the tabernacle, the tent it would reside in, and, and so David goes, and he brings the ark up, and most theologians throughout church history, even in the Jewish tradition, believe that this psalm was written against that background, the joy of the ark after all these decades, the joy of God coming back to dwell with his people, the Lord coming up to the mountain. And so you'll notice that the psalm really moves in three stages. There is the call uh, to enter. There is the, the appeal to enter in. The psalm is demanding that we answer that question. And then there's the difficulty of entering in. Who can enter in? And then the psalmist expresses the difficulty, the challenge there is that we're confronted with, the obstacle. And then he gives the way of entrance there in verses 7 through 10, the crescendo. Um, we're going to look at that tonight, the appeal to enter, the difficulty of entering, and the way of entering. And before I do say anything about this psalm theologically, there is a, there is a sense in which we're to understand that this psalm is, is written to be sung in choruses. There's repeating refrains. So the choir master may have led the people to say, uh, uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And the people would say, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. There is a, there is a, a reciprocal recitation. There's a responsive singing throughout this psalm. It's really beautiful. 
the way the questions are asked and the answers are given. And yet it's moving to that climax of the way of entrance into the most holy place. Um, It may not seem evident at first how the first two verses fit with the rest of the psalm, given what I've just said. And yet, I think the answer is very simple. Here at the beginning, he's making a declaration of the majesty of God. The earth is the Lord's. Oh, don't forget that. How the world has forgotten that. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the, the world and those who dwell there. And he has founded it upon the seas. It, the psalmist takes our minds back. Genesis 1, when God was hovering over the stormy waters out of which he brought creation in the depths of the waters. He would destroy the world with those same waters. He would undo creation at the flood, and then he would subside it again and bring creation out of the waters again. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And in that creation, and this is the link in that creation, in redemptive history that he would create a city for himself, Zion, Jerusalem. He would create a city where he would dwell with his people, where he would put his king, and, and it would be the center of the city would be the king's house and, and the tabernacle, and then later the temple, and it would be on the mountain in the city. And that's because Eden was on a mountain. Ezekiel says that Eden and the garden of Eden we're on top of a mountain. That's why you have mountain themes throughout the Bible. That's why it goes mountaintop to mountaintop until we hear of the heavenly Mount Zion, the mountain of God where he dwells in holiness and perfection. And every step along the way in redemptive history is helping us understand more about the majesty of God. That's, that's why he built Jerusalem. That's why there was a mountain. That's why David would go up. If, if that had never happened, we wouldn't understand how to answer the question, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who, who can stand in his holy place? And so the Lord has done this magnificent thing in not just owning the world and all that's in it, but creating for himself a special place. Um, and so David is zeroing in, as it were, on the hill of the Lord as the people are carrying the ark up back to its proper place in redemptive history. Um, There's an appeal to enter. I said a minute ago, this ought to be the most important question flooding our minds and hearts. Um, We ought to be overwhelmed. Am I going to enter in? That should be the most important question. Will I enter in? Who can enter in? Um, it's often been said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, this is the great question of questions for the examined life. Will I enter in? Um, There's a call. There is the hope of entering. Not just for David typologically, not just in that moment when he was bringing the ark up, but for us, will you enter in? That's the question, can I enter in? You ought to ask that question. You. I ought to ask that question. Will I? Who can? Who will enter? Not will my neighbor enter? Will I enter? But yet there's, there's an appeal. There's an opportunity to enter in. Now, 
You know this, in the Old Testament, only the high priest could go into the most holy place. And once a year, not without blood, both for himself and for uh, the people who he represented. And that's how we understand what Jesus has done for us. Because he's the great high priest. And, and yet, God is so holy that if the priest took on himself to do anything wrong in the approach into the most holy place, he would be struck dead. There's a, there's a tradition, it's not in the Bible, but that they tied a rope to his ankle with, a, with bells so that if he was dead in there, they could pull him out. We don't know if that's true, but that's the picture we ought to have, that God is so holy, no one could enter in behind the veil except the high priest. Um, the question's answered for us before we even move further. And yet, there's an appeal to enter, and David is longing to enter. In fact, David takes his kingly garbs off and puts the ephod on, which is the priestly garb, as it were, to show his desire to have that nearness to God, to be with God. Um, longing for the thing. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think we've lost something in recent years where we don't think enough about heaven and the state of our souls because we're so consumed with earthly things. We're so consumed with our lives and interest. And the media has grabbed our minds for good or ill and press this agenda, and this psalm refocuses us and says, who and This is the most important question, this appeal to enter in. And secondly, and such a substantive portion of this psalm is taken up with this, is the difficulty of entering. Notice the psalmist says in verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Now, you know this. The Selah is there so that we would pause and reflect. We think. We don't know. But that's what we say. And it's good to do that anyway, even if it doesn't mean that. And we're supposed to think about this. What has the answer been? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Remember, the priest would wash his hands in the laver that, that was reflective of the, the crystal sea before the throne. And that's why you have a tabernacle and a temple. It's reflective of heaven to help us know more about heaven. And he had to wash his hands. He had to have clean hands. And, and, and when I asked the question, can I enter in? I'm immediately confronted with the difficulty. Um, I haven't had clean hands and a pure heart. I'm not clean. Isaiah himself, when he was in the presence of the Lord, when he was in the, the true temple, the heavenly sanctuary, he, he said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. That's the very place he was called to minister as a prophet, the lips. Where, where I am called to minister for the Lord, I'm unclean, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And, and just 10 psalms before this, Psalm 14, David says there's none righteous, 
No, not one. That's where Paul gets it. And he, he, he says it in Psalm 53, just so you don't forget. Twice. There are none righteous. No one does good. Charles Spurgeon has a, a sermon on this psalm in which he says, there are many who presumptively think, well, I'm going to enter. I'm going to heaven. Sure. And he said, that person is not going to enter. The person says, yep, I'm going. I'm good. Um, Spurgeon goes on to say, if your first reply is, I shall never get there, for I am weak and the hill is exceedingly high. He says, if your first response is saying to the minister, sir, you have told us that godliness is a great steep and that true religion is towering up. I am so weak. To perfect holiness and perfect rest, I can never come. I am the weakest of the entire family. He says, oh, my dear brother, be of good cheer. If that be your only cause of mourning, lay it aside and remember while you are weak, it is not your strength which is to carry you there but God's. And so there is a sense where the first time we read this, we are to say, I am undone. I will never enter in. How, how much do your hands need to be clean? One complaining word, if all your other sins were forgiven, would send you to hell forever. If you just had one single corrupt thought, is infinitely holy and infinitely just. David's not saying general cleanness is going to get you there. He's not saying general good intentions are going to get you there. They won't. Um, I mean, I, I am undone when I think about standing before the Lord on Judgment Day. I have consolation in Christ. But first, I ought to be undone, like Isaiah. And think, how? How, how will I ever enter in? Um, notice, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false or an idol he who does not swear deceitfully. Who among us can say that we haven't sworn deceitfully? Who among us can say that our yes has always been yes, our no has always been no? I mean, we take membership vows. None of you have kept yours. None of you, the way you're supposed to. I've taken ministerial vows, marriage vows. None of us have kept them in any sense the way we were supposed to, but we took them. We did not swear to our hurt. And so there's a difficulty here. Um, there is another sense that these are general descriptions of those who have been redeemed. That those who will go to glory um, are those who, by faith in Christ, have been washed in his blood. Jesus said, you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Right? If I, if I don't serve you, you have no part with me. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to our God. And there's a sense where this is a general description. This ought to be characteristic of my life. I love purity and holiness. I want to be pure and holy. I don't want to lift up my soul to falsehood. I don't want to swear deceitfully. I want to be a man. If you're a woman, I want to be a woman of my word. Um, 
And that covers really the whole of our lives, what's being described here. You could read Psalm 15. There's a similar description. Um, Notice that David says there in verse 8, such is the generation of those who seek him. He's talking about the true Israel. He's saying this is the generation of Jacob. These, These are the true descendants of Abraham, those who have hearts that long to be with God and to do what's pleasing to him and to reflect his character. And, and this is the people of God. This is the generation. This is the offspring of God. This is the seed of the woman in Christ. These are what God's people ought to look like. Now, I know I've wasted many years. Maybe you've wasted many years. I've wasted many, many years. And, and we're not trying to have more years of this than we haven't. That's not, that's not how the blessing accrues, but we don't want to spend any more of our time not pursuing these things in our lives. Um, and yet I think when we, we come to this and we consider um, that legal conditionality that only those with clean hands and pure hearts We'll come before the Lord. We go to Christ. Hopeless abandonment. We say, wash me, Savior, or I die. Right? Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's the proper response to this. And then form me into your image that I might be a man or a woman of clean hands and a pure heart, of fidelity to you, of truthfulness in my speech and my life. And then notice after this break, this Selah, we, we have the third stage in this song. We have the last chorus, and it's, it's the crescendo. And, and it's the way of entrance. There's, there's another answer, as it were, and this is awesome. Don't miss this. There is another answer. He's already given one answer. Only those with clean hands and a pure heart can enter. Now he's going to give the, the, the answer that lies behind that answer, the foundation of that answer. Notice he says, now turning and metaphorically, as it were, speaking to the gates of the tabernacle. Later on, there'll be the gates of the temple, right? The book of Revelation will speak of the gates Right? The 12 tribes being the gates of the city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and, and he's, he turns and now he charges the gates and he says, lift up your heads, O you gate. What does he mean? Gates don't have heads. He means they need to be raised up. They need to be, they need to be elevated so, because what's about to happen is so big, the gates have to be expanded for it to happen. He says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up you everlasting doors, that the king of glory might come in. So he's answering the question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And it's not David who's entering in. Here, David is not speaking about himself. He says the king of glory may come in. Uh, Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory might come in. Um, this is the ascension of Jesus. 
I'll never forget sitting on my bed. This is 25 years old probably, 24, reading this with enlightened eyes. And it was like the Holy Spirit said, this is Jesus. This is the ascension of Christ. You know, when Jesus was ascending in Luke's gospel, um, at the end of the gospel, it says that as he ascended, he lifted up his hands and blessed his people. As he was being caught up in the clouds into glory, he lifted up his hands to bless them. He, he's the high priest, and he's lifting up the nail-pierced hands of his own sacrifice, showing where the blessing of God comes from. See, here in this psalm, notice that he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol nor swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. There's only been one who had clean hands and a pure heart. Truly and really, there has only ever been one who did not ever lift up his soul to an idol nor swear deceitfully. Um, there's only ever been one. There's only been one person that could read this psalm and realize that he was going to merit the covenantal blessings and righteousness of God as the representative of his people, and that was Christ. You see, Jesus would read this psalm and not be convicted of any impurity like we are. He would read this psalm and know he was going to enter in as the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. Um, as he's going to heaven, he lifts his hands, he blesses his people. He's showing them that he's entering into the temple, carrying the sacrifice of himself into the most holy place, where he now appears in the presence of God for us, as the writer of Hebrews says, he's the forerunner. That's one of the greatest, it's one of the greatest titles for Jesus. The forerunner. Who has gone through the gates so that you can go through the gates? Jesus is the forerunner of his people. He has first gone in. It's as if, because his sacrifice works retrospectively for the Old Testament saints. It's as if he was the first one ever to really and truly enter in because he secured a way so that his people who trust in him will enter in in glory. There's this beautiful picture of this in Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is a complicated book. I understand that, but there is a beautiful picture of this where there's the vision of the spiritual new temple, and, and it's so big it would never fit on a mountaintop. And uh, it's clearly the heavenly temple, and I will argue with you about that. And, and, and this, this new temple, and there's a river flowing, and it's like getting higher and higher up on Ezekiel's to his neck. And he's like, it's so high, and that's the Holy Spirit. And, th and this is the promise of the new covenant. But if you trace it out, there is a, there's a prince. He keeps speaking about this prince, the prince. And the prince ultimately enters into this new temple through the east gate. Now remember, Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden, and swords were placed at the east of Eden. They couldn't get back. They couldn't ascend the hill of the Lord back. Fiery swords. And those swords fell on Jesus at the cross. Zacharias said, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the one who is my companion. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus takes the sword of God's wrath. He goes through the fiery sword for your sinful soul and mine. 
And he enters in as the prince and savior. And he opens the gates. The veil is torn from top to bottom when his flesh is torn on the cross for my sin and your sin. The veil is torn. And the answer is, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The king of glory can. It's the only right answer. The king of glory can enter in. Um, I won't belabor this, but there are lots of things in verses 7 through 10 that the psalmist is giving us. He's telling us about the title. This is the Lord. Jesus is God. He's Yahweh. This, this is the one who is victorious. He's, he's absolutely victorious. He's strong and mighty. He's mighty in battle. What, what is he mighty in battle against? Sin and Satan and death. He came conquering and to conquer. Um, he, he, he defeated all of his and our enemies as our king. That's what we confess in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What benefit is it that Christ is a king? He's able and he has conquered all of his and our enemies. He came, Psalm 45 will say, as a king, a beautiful, glorious king with a sword strapped aside. He didn't come as, as uh, just a good teacher or just a really great guy to, to be emulated. He came as a warrior. He came to crush the head of the serpent. And that's good news for us because he opens the gates of paradise for us who by faith in him will also enter in. You know, Jesus, when he sent the disciples out to preach the gospel and work miracles and cast out demons, they came back and they were, they were enthralled. This is the greatest experience they had ever had. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And they were, they were giddy. They were like children on Christmas. The demons are subject to us in your name. And, and Jesus said, do not rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what's the privilege above all privileges? What ought to be the joy of all joys? What ought to enable us to sing profoundly rejoicing songs of praises like this? By the way, I didn't say this. Uh, scholars believe that this psalm was probably the first song written for temple worship, for worship at the tabernacle. And so from this psalm on is the rest of the Psalter. You could, in a sense, put this at the beginning of the Psalter and make this Psalm 1. And, and it, it, it is chronologically, arguably, uh, other than Moses' psalm, the earliest psalm. And it, it's stage. Andrew Bonar said, there's no psalm with such sublime and simple grandeur that describes better the path of the righteous to the throne of glory. And so it ought to enthrall our hearts so that when I feel condemned, and there are times when I feel condemned, and when you wonder, am I really going to enter into his rest? We come to this psalm, and we are made confident that the king of glory has entered in. You know who rode to heaven on this psalm? The thief on the cross rode to heaven on this psalm. Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Lord, remember me. And Jesus' response, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm entering in, and you're going to enter in with me. Um, that's a comfort to our sinful souls. I want to just leave you with um, just a couple basic thoughts. One, I want to press on all of us tonight, if I could, the importance of us really wrestling with this question. Uh, you may have been in church your whole life and never really wrestled with this question. Uh, you may be a child growing up in a Christian home and have never truly wrestled with this question. Um, you may be an officer. I mean, it doesn't matter. We all are called to wrestle with this question. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And then I want to press on you that we would come to terms with the fact that we in our, of ourselves would never enter in. Nothing unclean will enter it. That we would own the enormity of our sin and that we would go straight to the foot of the cross and we would say, wash me, Savior, or I die. And that we would then go back to him repeatedly for renewed cleansing, for renewal in the power of his spirit. Um, you know, there's going to be one day, and I'll leave you with this thought, there's going to be one day, as Rutherford, citing Revelation 14, said, that the Lamb with his fair army, will on Mount Zion stand. That's going to be an awesome picture. The heavenly Mount Zion, the Lamb of God, with his fair army of those who he made more than conquerors. Um, I hope that we'll be part of that by faith in Jesus Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we do acknowledge that you are so holy and we are so unholy. Lord, we, we pray that you would wash us in the blood of the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would flood our minds and our hearts with joy and gladness knowing that you have entered into heaven itself and now to appear in the presence of God for us. And Lord, we pray that you would indwell our hearts and that you would carry us to glory. We pray that you would show us the way up the hill by faith in you. We pray that each man and woman and boy and girl in this place would enter in with shouts of joy and praise and thanksgiving to the one who was slain and who has redeemed us to God by his blood. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.